welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. My name is Caroline Liefers, and it's my pleasure today to be talking to Dr. Bess Williamson. Bess is an associate professor of art history, theory, and criticism at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She is the author of Accessible America, a history of disability and design, which came out last year. Bess, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Caroline. So I want to start, if you don't mind, by having you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this intersection between disability and design. Yes, well, um, I am a historian, but I have a few um, different disciplines in the mix. Um, so I um, have my PhD in um, history with an emphasis on American civilization, so kind of a, an interdisciplinary degree, but my background is in the history of design within um, technological history. So I had been working on um, the ways in which designers kind of critiqued um, American society in the later 20th century, right? If we, um, if we think of um, the 1960s and sort of environmentalism and a greatest, greater awareness of US um, you know, industrial production in the world and inequality and so on. And I noticed that designers who were mentioning that uh, also were mentioning disability. So sort of in the same breath, they were saying, you know, things are polluting and they're too expensive and they don't work that well and they're reflective of, you know, the wastemakers, the tastemakers and so on. And they were saying, and they don't work for disabled people. And it really occurred to me that, that those things aren't always discussed together today. Um, and I realized as I looked further into it that actually there had been lots done in that area, right? There's lots of stuff to look at when we talk about accessibility, you know, different kinds of curb cuts, ramps, you know, speaking computers, all kinds of things. Whereas when we think about environmentalism, a lot of the ideas have never come to pass, right? You know, sort of, you know changes in energy sources and materials and so on. And so from the standpoint of a history graduate student, I was pretty excited at the prospect of having a lot of stuff to look at. Um, and so that sort of brought me to understand this topic and realize almost nothing had been written by that time, um, historicizing the changes in the physical environment that we call accessibility. So your book identifies the post-war era in particular as being a really important period of change for disability and design. Can you start by just kind of talking us through that moment? Yes, um, of course. So, you know, I, I um, one of the things I realized, right, as I, as I started to look kind of, you know, earlier than the 1960s of where this critique was coming from is recognizing that a huge cultural change in the way that Americans and really people worldwide viewed disability was occurring right in the mid 20th century because of the convergence of two major factors, the end of World War II and the return of disabled veterans from that war and the polio epidemic, um, which was the focus of you know, very advanced media and philanthropic campaigns. So both of these populations of the disabled veteran and um, the polio survivor were seen as sympathetic and greatly deserving of everything that the affluent American post-war society had to offer. Um, so these, I see a direct connection between these um, events and the growing um, sort of notion over the last half of the 20th century that something should be done in the public to make everyday streets, sidewalks, um, transportation, and so on accessible. So while, you know, uh, historians of the 20th century and of the U.S. will recognize that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president ending in, in 1945, he 
you know, he's an example of someone who um, handled disability almost entirely as a private issue, right? He was wealthy. He relied on his son to help him walk, right? He had a, you know, hand-driven car and so on, but not changes in the broader public that really came sort of after his lifetime. So in the 1950s and 1960s. And you talk a little bit about rehabilitation hospitals and the Institute for Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation in your book. And these stories can often be kind of mixed for um, disabled people, but you do mention that there were some technologies and some advocacy work that came out of those sites, right? So can you kind of talk me through some of this complicated history? Yes, um, you know, and here's where, um, yeah, I, exactly. I came across a, a complicated example, right, as we often do once we go to the, the sources of history, which is that the very same places where many disabled people experienced um, a very, had a very negative experience of disability, of tremendous pressure, of diagnosis, of being kind of forced to perform in a particular way, um, including sometimes like being on, you know, poster children on telethons and so on, were um, those places which are these post-war sites of rehabilitation of, um, of a particular medical treatment that's only focused on, on rehabilitation is also a site of tremendous amount of kind of creative energy around what we now call accessibility. Because those um, professionals uh, who are working in these rehabilitation hospitals, you know, doctors, uh, social workers, um, physical and occupational therapists are very focused on returning disabled people back into the mainstream. They are very focused on the inaccessibility of that mainstream world because they see that as like, that's what ends up being the barrier, not their their patients, you know, paralysis or their difficulty walking or their blindness or whatever, but that it's a technological problem. Um, so there's a curious um, a contradiction, and I really find that contradiction in the figure of Howard Rusk, the who was an army uh, or sorry, an Air Force um, doctor who um, really who founded the field of rehabilitation medicine in many ways um, in the post-war U.S. He founded this major center at um, NYU Bellevue Hospital, which still exists and is now called Rusk Rehabilitation, and he was so fixated on what he called rehabilitation from bed to job, right? So with this like specific outcome of being employed, of being um, independent, um, that he put a tremendous amount of pressure on his patients. And there are narratives of people saying, you know, that he sort of forced them to walk when they really, you know, couldn't and so on. But at the same time, he did a lot of advocacy around access. So he, um, for example, consulted on an architectural project in Florida to build um, accessible uh, housing, which is the first like planned housing development that is wheelchair accessible. He advocated with um, the mayor's office of New York um, to put an elevator in City Hall, right? The, the New York Public Library to have a ramp, all of these kinds of things. So there's this curious kind of combination of encouragement and pressure that is wrapped up in that rehabilitation. But, but more than anything, I'd say significantly, while there's a big emphasis on technology, the lens is very um, kind of patriarchal, right? And, and, in ter and, and I'd say patronizing in terms of saying like the, that people need to prove themselves and need to overcome in order to kind of deserve to be in an accessible um, context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. And when we're talking about these often government sponsored and or hospital based efforts in particular, are they just about that from bed to job thing? Or do they ever try to consider the person's life sort of in a more holistic way? 
Well, I think that, you know, um, the narrative is often from bed to job, right? But then once you look more specifically at people's actual lives, the story is more, um, more mixed, right? Where you have people, for example, who maybe can't work full-time outside of the house, but have home businesses, right? Or are working part-time. Um, or, you know, interestingly, Rusk starts to get involved in the, the late 1940s and 1950s in a massive project um, on so-called handicapped housewives, right? So very much defining the home as a workplace for women, right? So he, saw, he calls the handicapped housewife like the largest um, vocational group of disabled people. Um, but of course, fixing up a house to make it accessible is very different from making, you know, a factory floor because pe other people live there, you know, the shared workspaces or, or home spaces. So I think once he starts paying attention to the house, it kind of explodes that focus on the job because you start to realize like we're also focusing on, you know, going to the bathroom and brushing your teeth and doing your makeup, right? Those aren't exactly specific vocational tasks, right? Um, so that actually brings kind of a broader definition of what accessibility might be. Um, and in particular, you see disabled people sort of holding on to those tasks and defining them for themselves as a part of their own personal independence, right? Which means I don't have to ask someone else for help to eat or, you know, put on lipstick or whatever, not necessarily defining it in terms of, of productive, you know, paying labor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This actually brings me to, I think, what might be one of my favorite chapters in your book, which is about the tinkerers. <laughs> so you mention uh, people like Ida Brinkman and her family who did this sort of improvisational or kind of DIY disability design. And you have some incredible um, sources and places where people would share tips and tricks with each other. So can you talk me through a little bit about this research and what you found about DIY disability design? Yeah, and this is a real like uh, historian's, you know, delightful moment of, you know, I just sort of, I was at doing a um, fellowship at the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of American History, and I went to the National Library of Medicine in, in Maryland and was just like kind of checking out every, or, or viewing every book they had that was like, had the word, you know, disabled, crippled, so-and-so, you know, sort of from a, a time period. And I came across this periodical, the Toomey J Gazette. Um, which I don't want to, you know, I didn't discover others had written about it, but it hadn't been very well known, which was like a zine for polio survivors. Um, and it's just an amazing, rich resource of people's photographs of their own homes, drawings of, you know, real and imagined idealized products that they wish they could use and that they're tinkering and making at home and just wild stories of people, you know, cutting their cars in half and figuring out how to use them with a wheelchair and all kinds of, you know, things that really show a, a group of people, a particular demographic of people, I think mostly white middle-class people who um, end up living at home. Maybe they're living with their families. Maybe they're living on their own. Um, like Ida Brinkman, who was a married woman with children who got polio. So she moved back in, you know, with her husband and children and narrates like all of the things that she needs in everyday life, right? So a foot operated phone so she can call for an emergency if she's with her children, a, um, a typewriter or, or rather a um, she, she alters the chest shell respirator that she has to help her breathe so that she can reach past it to type on a typewriter with using a mouth stick, right? So these are just tremendous and very specific, very customized technologies that people are developing on their own. And I say this is a historian's delight for many reasons, but particularly because it gives us an insight into what 
the patient, quote unquote, patients or the recipients or the users of these technologies we're doing, which we so rarely get, right? We usually have like doctors' accounts or publications or, um, you know, advertisements or patents by technology makers. We so rarely get that sort of primary source of people actually doing stuff. So it revealed to me a tremendous creative culture of people making access in their own homes, which of course then extends, I think, really throughout the history of disability in the modern world when people have always been altering and adapting and figuring out how to use tools that might not be designed for them to make everyday life work with a disability. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to push a little bit at this issue of class and race and also if you want to talk about gender because I imagine these experiences were not shared by everyone. Not everybody had access to some of these technologies in the first place and or these means in which to sort of share their discoveries. So if you could talk me through a little bit of the race, class, gender implications of this. Yes, and this is where I really draw on, um, I make reference to the, the overall literature about um, the post-war citizenship in the United States, right? That this is a time of tremendous government generosity um, in the form of social programs, particularly for veterans, right? Like the GI Bill um, or the so Servicemen's Rehabilitation Act of 1944, which provided um, veterans with, you know, home mortgages, college uh, education, um, and broadened health care, right? Um, the literature on these, um, on these programs has been for, for you know, a, a couple of decades now really emphasizing the ways in which it defines citizenship unequally, right? That those who had access to these programs were able to tremendously expand their social mobility, their economic possibilities, and so on. But if they were in various marginalized categories, they were unlikely to access them. So for example, living in the segregated South, right? Um, black veterans were not able to attend certain kinds of, of um, colleges or certainly buy mortgages because of the larger structural conditions or women, the few women who were um, eligible for the GI Bill, you know, couldn't get a mortgage without a husband. You know, these kinds of dimensions of, of inequality that were part of the larger society. And this I find to be true also with disability and access, where disabled people are under sort of an, a double pressure to perform not only as disabled people um, fitting into an inaccessible world, but also to sort of overperform their expected gender roles. So for men, uh, for veterans in particular, I noted that a lot of accessible technologies really emphasize independence from a woman, right? So feeding yourself is about being not being supported by your wife, right? Or, or working or dressing or whatever, that there's again and again this sort of emphasis on being independent specifically in order to sort of be a conventional husband to still you know, push a lawnmower, to drive a car, these kinds of things. Whereas for women, um, it's about still being able to perform the roles of, of a conventional um, housewife um, uh, under, under significant pressure, which is to not be left alone um, as a, a woman uh, who might have more limited um, access. So, so I say I found these remarkable sources and I was delighted to find them, but I also need to recognize that the, the population of disabled people who were able to move into, you know, single family houses to make their own access to attend college in the post-war period were also already in 
uh, um, white, middle-class, um, heterosexual, kind of um, expected normative um, group, I found very little evidence of um, non-white disabled people living at home in this period. And I'm not saying that means that um, they were not, but just that they weren't represented in the literature. Um, and I think that it was probably much more difficult, right? Uh, uh, the the post-war suburban house is much easier to make accessible than like a tenement style house in a city. Um, and so my, my sense is that, um, and from the little bit of representation I found is that um, for in particular that black disabled people were more likely to be institutionalized or in some kind of community care in this time period um, rather than living on their own or even being given the message that independence um, was kind of a goal. But, um, but that area uh, remains a, a really challenging from a, um, from a research standpoint because um, like black polio survivors are almost completely invisible in the, in the medical record, in the sort of um, medical literature of this period um, as are disabled veterans. So um, it, it, uh, I think that that normative story also kind of dominates over the sources and makes it very difficult to get a sense of kind of what were people experiences experiencing across different demographics. Mm -hmm, absolutely, yeah. Um, I want to pick up on the university's thread in particular, because you mentioned that a couple times in your previous answer, and you have a chapter about Berkeley as a kind of hotbed for disability activism. So tell me about when that started and what some of the key developments were in that regard. Yeah, so this is a story that um, is probably the most known to any disability historian um, in the U.S., uh, and I hope is getting to be known more broadly by historians of civil rights um, or of, um, you know, of the protest movements of the 1960s, um, that there's a small group of disabled veterans, uh, sorry, of disabled students, uh, for the most part, not veterans, I should say, for the most part, um, polio survivors and people with spinal cord injuries, who became the first residents of like a, a specially designed dormitory on the campus of the University of California um, at Berkeley. And just to note, briefly, right, they're not the first disabled college students by any means. There's a whole program for disabled college students in Illinois that I also cover from an earlier period, but they, they really take hold of the politics of the moment to assert a kind of independence and self-advocacy that is unparalleled at that time. And so they kind of emerge as a hotbed for the American disability rights movement. And I think um, they they provide a really helpful kind of window into the ways that disabled people um, shifted or, or were able to translate their own individual experiences navigating uh, the medical and social bureaucracy of the post-war period into a form of self-advocacy um, and a political movement, right? Rather than just, uh, if we talk about the difference between sort of individual um, success as opposed to structural change where they translated their own individuals um, uh, superstardom or as they would call it you know uh, super crip kind of status of being you know the first disabled person to you know hold a certain kind of job or graduate from college or whatever um, into an advocacy movement so I look at the ways that this group of students who have been covered in a variety of other disability histories but the way that they translated their um, advocacy on their own part to just attend college into advocacy for access on a broad scale in Berkeley. So they um, become activists for widespread change, um, leading to the first contiguous 
wheelchair accessible district <laughs> in the U.S. I don't know if that that uh, resonates, but rather than just you know an individual courthouse or an individual block having ramps, um, they worked with the city planning department to map out like more than a hundred um, curb cuts that were, were built over the early 1970s in Berkeley. So we think of the difference, right, between just being able to get into one building as opposed to being able to travel on your own and like stop at a coffee shop, stop at a bookstore, take the subway, you know, connect uh, the university to other places in the city. Um, so they, they established the Center for Independent Living in Berkeley, which remains kind of one of the premier kind of grassroots community-based disability organizations, right, as opposed to that rehabilitation hospital model that I mentioned before, which is much more of a kind of expert professional driven. This is a community driven um, kind of advocacy organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You also talk about legislative changes that made a difference for disabled people. So the Architectural Barriers Act in 1968, um, in 1977, activism helped lead to enforcement of section 504 of an earlier rehabilitation act. And I'm curious about whether you think this sort of legislative change was essential to improving access for people with disabilities, or does it reflect changes that were already happening, or is it a little bit of both? I mean, which is the chicken, which is the egg, you know? Right. Um, of course, you know, as any historian will tell you, a little bit of both, but <laughs> I, I do think that, um, you know, one of the, the reasons this project um, appealed to me is it's it's distinctly um, U.S. American, right? Each country really has its distinct disability histories because of distinct legal systems, right? And legal milestones. So um, the Architectural Barriers Act, the idea of a federal act, right? That it's not enough to just have local codes, all of which sort of mismatch, but that this is a federal priority um, specifically tied to kind of the rights of, of veterans um, in 1968. And then, in 1973, the Rehabilitation Act uses specific civil rights language, uses anti-discrimination language to define physical uh, disability as a, a protected category. Um, but maybe most significantly, these legal statutes prove to be not enough by themselves, right? In both cases, the laws don't really do anything because there's no enforcement. There's no specific regulations sort of indicating what those um, those statutes really mean. So um, in the case of the, the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, as um, other disability uh, historians can also have also written about, right, there's kind of this moment where legislators put in that um, disability is a protected category for discrimination in federal programs, but they don't really say what that means, right? So if we think about this from the standpoint of like a public bus. If a bus stops, and nobody says, like deliberately says to a disabled person, you can't get on, is that enough to pass the sort of legal litmus test for non-discrimination or does the bus itself need to be usable by that person, right? So if we think of a bus that doesn't have any kind of wheelchair lift, is that a form of discrimination? And so there's a back and forth legally about this question um, for quite a few years with no regulations. And it's not until a national protest movement in 1977 that there's, assigned regulation um, specifically saying what this form of anti-discrimination means, that there needs to be a specific number of ramps of, you know, accessible parking spaces and bathrooms and so on. So there's, in this case, I think there's a very evident need for a pairing of the law with, um, you know, measures of enforcement um, that require the kind of public outcry to make them happen. Mm 
Mm-hmm. No, it's, that makes a lot of sense. I want to follow up on this buses issue as well, because this was a volatile public issue starting in the 70s and not resolved uh, until well after, in fact, when some might argue it's still not been resolved today. So can you talk us through the story and um, the important work that activists like the ADAPT movement, for example, contributed to this, this um, particular issue? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, so as I mentioned, there's this period in the 1970s of a lot of conflict between sort of local disability rights groups that are growing um, across the country and legislators where, you know, there's a kind of pushback, like everyone can say, oh, we want to quote, help the handicapped, you know, people are on the side of disabled veterans and so on, but they're not willing to kind of put the teeth into the law to make it happen. Um, and as a result, there are a lot of public fights over particular facilities, right, around schools and whether they're accessible, around um, uh, public transportation in particular. And I argue that the bus issue really did a lot to establish what we now know of this conflict, which is the idea that accessible design is like nice to have, but really difficult to get, that it's inconvenient, that's expensive, that it requires a lot of retrofitting and, um, you know, special technology, that it's a difficult process. Because I, what I found before then is that, you know, while there aren't national laws that are well enforced, the overall attitude is like, this is not that difficult, right? You can, you know, adding a ramp, um, planning uh, that, that it's possible. Whereas there, the really clear backlash, the strength of, of you know, city mayors and um, lobbying groups for tra- the transportation industry specifically cast this as like asking too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are headlines such as the New York Times editorial um, uh, uh, in, I think it's 1980 or 1979 that says um, must every bus kneel to the disabled like as if the you know these are like bowing down to this difficult lobby and there's there's um, quote after quote and sort of article after article in which people say you know this is putting an undue burden on the broad public because of the inconvenience of like shutting down subway systems to renovate them or redesigning um, buses, but it's also, it's a real um, sort of PR public discussion about what is the kind of threshold for access? Um, how much is enough? And, and this, there starts to be this kind of specter of the disabled lobby that is like asking too much when they're asking for various levels of access. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. And then is that resolved? I mean, what is your take on this? Um, well, the way it's resolved is through compromise. Um, that is largely, you know, is largely resolved through, um, uh, sorry, through, through private industry um, uh, kind of compromise. So that GM, General Motors, the largest maker of public buses by this time in the U.S., says, you know, oh, we have the, the accessible bus, but it, it's this model in which the wheelchair lift is in the back uh, door, which, you know, even just symbolically, we can think about what that kind of means of having the wheelchair lift in the back of the bus rather than the front, but also just logistically what that means. The bus has to stop, the bus driver has to go in the back, they're often broken, they have a special key, all this kind of thing, that the compromise is that um, the uh, the law allow the um, lawsuits allow for the buses to go ahead with kind of an existing model rather than producing a more inclusive more accessible model and I think this compromise really comes out of a kind of push for um, a quote-unquote business friendly approach to access which um, 
which continues. And I think that, uh, that approach does imprint itself on the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, um, in which uh, there are the broadest regulations for access on a federal level than there ever have been, but they tend to put the burden on disabled people to ask for access rather than on businesses. Mm -hmm. um, like there's no measure to survey businesses over time or on their level of accessibility. So there's, um, I think this comp the compromise that comes out of the, the trans bus issue um, has its echoes in ongoing accessibility regulations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, just to pivot a little bit, you also talk about a surge in basically mainstream disability design, you know, starting in the 1970s, carrying on from there. So tell me a little bit about this uh, area of accessible design. Yeah, so this is another, you know, place where we might think of, of contradiction, right? So on the one hand, throughout the 1970s and 1980s, there are these raging lawsuits, um, I didn't really get to this before, but ADAPT, the activist organization, is like chaining itself to, you know, uh, the hotel conferences where the public transit associations are meeting. You know, there's much more sort of a spike in, in conflict over this. Yet at the same time, in the design world, there's a surprising, you know, kind of optimism around accessibility. Mm -hmm. And I would say not so much in the realm that's covered by um, federal law in terms of architecture, public transportation but in the consumer products realm. Mm -hmm. So in the area of, you know, household consumer electronics and, um, and appliances where designers are saying we can add this in and actually it's going to bring about a better outcome. Um, so I, I mentioned a few key um, products of the 1980s and 1990s, the Cuisinart food processor, um, OXO good grips, the um, sort of rubber large, uh, chunky rubber handled kitchen tools as um, consumer products that did very well in the market and which were designed based on studies of disability. So while they're not marketed as a kind of adaptive equipment, they're not sold through medical technology companies, they are, um, their designers had studied you know, particular disabilities in order to, to produce them. And in some ways this represents a kind of you know, a sort of a third way in terms of this discussion, right? That it's not so much either the compromise of disability or the, um, the just intractability of, of organizations that refuse to comply with the law, but in fact, there's this creative option which seems to benefit both businesses and um, disabled people in terms of having more usable products out there. Mm. Was there ever any uh, pushback either from the public or within the design community where people didn't want these products or they thought they were ugly or something like that? Um, I would say not so much pushback as much as a kind of, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a certain neutrality or, or um, sort of lack of discussion. So in the case of, of OXO Good Grips, when I mentioned that, many people are familiar with that story or they may... They may have a sense even just from looking at them, like these are super usable, right? So it's maybe not a surprise to know that one of the designers was a woman, you know, who had arthritis and her husband was an, um, a professional designer and that they worked together to develop these. It might not be such a surprise, but the Cuisinart is more of a surprise. In fact, I've had people say, oh, you know, like I buy it with Oxford Grips, but I'm not so sure with the Cuisinart. And I say, you know, this is not my opinion. This is based on archival evidence. The designer, you know, took notes on his own advertisements, you know, sort of pointing out their, their benefits in terms of, you know, the, if you think of the Cuisinart has these like 
big block buttons rather than all the teeny tiny little buttons that might be on a cheaper kind of blender. You know, these are specifically designed around studies on manual um, impairments and arthritis and so on. So it's not, you know, a guess on my part. I know that's how they were designed, but they've never been advertised that right way, right? So you can question what their benefit is for disabled people, right? They may be usable, but they're, first of all, kind of a, an expensive luxury product. But they also do nothing to kind of challenge the taboo around disability, right? They just sort of um, introduce themselves and say nothing <laughs> uh, after that. So I think the question is not so much about backlash as kind of the deeper question, I guess, of whether this significantly changes anybody's attitudes about disability um, to bring it culturally brought, uh, more into the mainstream. Um, and I'm not sure how much those products do, or, or perhaps they even suggest a bit of a kind of secrecy, like this is out there, but you have to know about it and ask about it, right? Rather than we're going to have lots of like beautiful disabled people using them in an advertisement or something like that, um, that kind of uh, a more um, deeper cultural change. Thank you so much, Bess. I'm curious about this concept of universal design, which in your book you mentioned comes from this designer named Ron Mace. And I mean, in your sense, did it live up to its promise? And what did it get right versus what's still an issue? Right, so um, Ronald Mace uh, is, a, is a super interesting character. And I just wanna mention that um, my colleague, Amy Hamray, H-A-M-R-A-I-E, uh, -E, um, has written a brilliant book that came out just a little bit before mine called um, Building Access, which um, focuses even more on Mace and kind of his circle and the ideas or, um, that circulated in the 1980s to produce universal design. Um, but, uh, but Mace is a really interesting figure. It's a disabled architect. He had polio as a child, so he's also part of that kind of generation um, that you know, sort of fended for themselves and then produced broader change. Um, but he coined this term after having been an architect for almost 20 years and working on accessibility. And he, he penned many of the kind of um, federal regulations. So he was a real kind of uh, in the trenches accessible designer. But I think he saw the appeal of a, war, a, a different term, right? He, his own company had been called barrier-free environments, right? is like the least sexy way to describe accessibility is just like barrier free, right? Um, and I think he recognized the need for a word that sounded like positive around accessibility, right? Universal design, a, a, a goal that truly everyone can embrace. Um, that said, he recognized that it wasn't a cure-all, right? That it wasn't, there often wasn't a single solution that could truly be usable by um, people of all range of disabilities. Um, or that could be seamlessly integrated. And I think sometimes, um, as Amy writes about very usefully, sometimes there's a kind of attitude in the design world that universal design is kind of a fix for this problem, right? That there's a, that design can change everything. Um, and that in fact, as we can see in this history, there have often been pushbacks and compromises and kind of internal contradictions in these designs. And the, the, the idea of universal design can sometimes I think oversimplify or make it seem as if this is an easy choice mm -hmm. or just quote unquote common sense um, as Amy uh, mentions in, in their own writing. And I think the notion of common sense kind of um, 
can sometimes erase the work of activists who very much had to make their case and were very much opposed by people who thought it was not common sense. Um, to, in fact, still we hear about the idea that accessibility is not common sense, right? Like just be, just be sensible, not everyone can have access, this sort of thing. So, um, so I think sometimes the rhetoric of universal design can be, um, can be challenging. That said, I still think, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Ron Mace fan. I think he, he should be getting a lot of, of attention in the history of design, not only for his personal story, but for the ways in which he mingled an extremely practical approach to making access. You know, really doing the work of drawing out the options, of charting the course with always having a kind of understanding of the bigger picture. Um, that design is a process over time, that it needs community engagement, um, that it needs revision and review and so on. What do you see as some of the major access or design issues that are still out there when it comes to disability? Well, I've, I've had some interesting discussions um, in the last few years uh, as our politics, right? I, I was wrapping up this book uh, right in the like year or so after the Trump election. And I think, you know, I wrote it in a time of greater optimism around kind of the America's social programs and rights discourse. And since 2016, or even, you know, since a little bit earlier, being, being aware of the pushback against the ADA, um, uh, there are ever new renewed um, pushes in the US political context to repeal virtually all aspects of the ADA. Um, so I think the ADA is very much still a very relevant piece of legislation to consider and also to think about the conditions under which it was passed, right? That it was passed by a bipartisan group who very much emphasized kind of the individual disabled citizen and co consumer um, as, the, as its focus. And today that there is much greater skepticism on the right toward any kind of political, of, uh, of social programs, right? Of... Um, so-called entitlements, you know, food stamps, welfare, um, and so on, and that the ADA often accessibility kind of gets lumped in that. So unfortunately, I find that on the eve of the 30th anniversary of the ADA that it feels as endangered as it ever has been. At the same time, there's a much broader grasp of the variations of disability itself, and I, and I will 100% um, accept uh, the potential critique of my own book is very focused on physical uh, mobility related disability. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, in part that reflects like the, the tenor of the conversation and who was involved in the conversation during the late 20th century. But more recently, we're much more aware, I think, of the breadth of disability to include, you know, chronic illness, to include, you know, learning intellectual um, uh, sensory um, conditions and so on. And so that, so access itself becomes a much broader um, scope of, and, and discussion, right? That it's not just like what you, you install a ramp and then you're done, sure. right? But that um, there's a wide range of potential things, both physical and not, and, you know, ephemeral or structural that could be addressed in terms of access. So I think those are, are some of the big changes. Um, I'd say also in the design world, the con although I, I mentioned quite a few people in my book, including Ron Mace and all those people tinkering at home who are disabled people making design change, I'd say at the time of the the late 20th century, the conversation is almost entirely about how designers can improve access 
for an imagined other people, which are disabled people. Whereas I think the current discussion is very much about how more disabled people are becoming designers, right? Sort of speaking their own truth, whether they're artists and performers, models, uh, you know, movie stars, or just people who are being educated in the um, professions of design. So I think that significantly changes kind of the discussion as quote unquote, the disabled become not some like imagined group out there, but, but the very same people who are in the room making decisions about design. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, instead of just designing for access or something like that, it becomes a space for creativity and personal expression and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, for people who are interested in this history and maybe want to do a little bit of research themselves or visit some museums, maybe cruise around in some online collections, are there any particular collections that you consulted that were really useful or that you'd recommend people go to if they're excited about disability and design? Um, absolutely. Well, the, the major source for any uh, U.S. historian of disability um, of the disability rights movement is the Disability Rights and Independent Living Movement collection at UC Berkeley, and they have quite a strength in their online collection. I really wouldn't have been able to do that part of the project without their extensive oral history collection um, that includes uh, both people who are sort of active in the Berkeley scene, as well as others, you know, architects, um, people who worked in the movement from other parts of the U.S., um, and even uh, there's somewhat of a global representation in that collection. Um, So that's a major source for just, I think, sort of general disability um, activism history. Um, You know, to speak a little bit to the ways in which the Disability History Association has also contributed to my work over time, that um, one of my dissertation Um, committee members was Paul Longmore, um, who did so much to kind of bring me into the network of of other historians, and that I think the conversations among disability historians is also, um, you know, a significant contribution. And I always want to encourage people who are like really in the field also to look at Paul also has an oral history that's in the Berkeley um, collection, and he tells some interesting stories about sort of the the road to becoming an academic as well, which kind of, you know, intersect with what we're doing. Uh, The other uh, collection, and I would say person without whom this project never would have quite been the same is uh, Catherine Ott's uh, curatorial work at the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian. Catherine is a remarkable mentor to so many of us, uh, disability, sort of disability tech people in in, uh, academia, Um, but, in particular, just to think of a, of a medical curator, a curator of medicine and science who's done a significant amount of work, not about doctors and uh, technical inventors, but about disabled people, you know, uh, uh, people who experience the medical profession from a, a consumer standpoint. So, um, and there's a great, uh, Catherine has curated a wonderful collection of the Smithsonian's object collections that relate to disability that's called Everybody, like, uh, I think it's every one word, but the body is capitalized. Um, so it's everybody.si.edu. That's just a wonderful kind of uh, material history that ranges from you know institutionalization and asylum histories through to technologies um, of everyday life through to you know significant objects of 
activism and um, protest that relate to this history. So that's a wonderful collection that I use a lot in teaching as well as, you know, just sort of uh, as research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as you've traveled around, I'm sure you did some, you know, press and stuff for this book where you gave talks and whatnot. Did you talk to members of various disability communities about their own thoughts on the history of design? And do they have stories to share? I mean, to what extent is this still like an ongoing conversation for you, you know? Oh, it is definitely an ongoing conversation um, in so many different ways. I mean, I think at, in almost any place we can talk about the spaces we're in and how they both allow and prevent access in different ways. Um, I had such a, a pleasure being on a um, Texas NPR show called Think, um, and which is like a call-in show. And almost every person that called in was a disabled person talking about sort of local access issues. Um, and one that was really interesting was a man was talking about um, being blind and living in a rural area. So public transportation was sort of an added um, challenge for him because of sort of limited routes um, and so on. But also he sort of brought to my attention the ways in which cities, just because of their density of population, often... Um, you know, have public transit systems that have to be more focused on like having, you know, many people on the bus all at the same time and they all may have different needs and so on, but that the rural routes really, you know, ha uh, were not well um, equipped to, you know, be accessible. Um, and so, you know, it just revealed to me, I think, how local these issues are, that we often have sort of favorite locales wherever we live that are sort of most accessible or that work best for us. Um, and, uh, and these are very distinct to wherever we may live. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really great point. So you also have an Instagram account, accessible.design, if I've got that right. So tell me about this account, what it does, how you got into it. Um, well, I, you know, it's, it's always fun to share the objects and images that I come across. Um, you know, I, as a as a historian, I'm, I'm always sort of seeking out the spaces and print materials that sort of relate to this history. And so it's great to share them. Um, and I, I think um, one area that I in particular often share on my Instagram that I maybe I don't write about as deliberately is our areas of like museum and exhibition accessibilities. Um, because like as a, as someone who you know, as a design historian, but also I work at an art school and connected to an art museum. I go to a lot of museum shows just all the time, you know, as I'm traveling or in my own local area in Chicago. And it's been really interesting to see how museum exhibitions are using different tools of access. So, um, for example, I went to an, um, an exhibition at the Chicago History Museum about Chicago's development of streamlined design, like, you know, Art Deco, you know, uh, telephones and appliances and so on that had that kind of streamlined 1930s look to them. And they had um, some touch objects, right? Some cast um, solid objects of like telephones and an iron. I can't remember that you could try out, you know, and it was just really notable to me how different kinds of museums have very different kinds of accessible um, uh, exhibition objects, right? Uh, in an art museum, I think it's rare to see a, to see like a replica of an object that you can touch, um, although it occasionally happens. Um, but so so I've been very curious about that. So I often share that kind of of detail on my Instagram. I think I also think about how uh, my personal Instagram has a sort of limit, only a only so much interest in the very you know precise details of accessible design. And so I thought 
perhaps I could share those beyond somebody, you know, my mother, who's mostly interested in like pictures of my children instead. <laughs> well, we're all grateful to have um, these wonderful photos that you take from all the various places you visit and things you see. So thank you for that. What else are you working on these days? I mean, congratulations on finishing this wonderful book. It's off your desk. It's out in the world. So what are you doing with your time now? Um, thanks. Why well, I'm doing, I have two different projects. I, I'm doing one sort of mini project, which might be a small book or, or maybe just um, an essay about kind of changing attitudes towards social, the social purpose of design uh, in the 20 years since September 11th, 2001. Um, just because I've kind of noted both the lack of discussion of that event, um, but yet I think the last 20 years have been very significant for designers in terms of talking about their public role. So that's a little bit of a tangent from my my own research. But um, as I mentioned, I, you know, one thing, the thing I, one of the things I became aware of in writing the book was how I don't, didn't have great access for sort of what was going on outside of a kind of white professionalized, um, middle class in in uh, the US um, when it came to accessibility. And so I've been increasingly been interested in what I call um, parallel design professions. So professions like occupational therapy, social work, home economics that are particularly focused on the built environment but are not called design. Um, these are areas much more likely to have women and people of color employed rather than um, design and architecture schools. Um, and I am curious, I've sort of been researching a little bit how these specialized programs um, interact with a broader social, um, uh, a broader spectrum of, the, of um, social, racial, um, economic groups um, in relationship to accessibility and other kind of domestic um, technology issues. As you may hear, that that project is still very much in formation. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We've all been there. <laughs> we'll look forward to seeing how it develops and changes shape over the next few years. So thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much, Bess. This has just been wonderful to have you on the podcast, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.